Well, this morning we uh, continue in our series that we've been in these last weeks called 40 Days in the Word. And if you have a uh, worship guide that you received when you came through the doors, I want to invite you to take the message notes out if you wish to do so. Follow along as we look at the topic today of how to study the Bible. Now, I've got to say this morning as we get going, uh, this is the one message in this series that's really going to feel like a seminar today. It's going to feel very different from what we normally do on a Sunday morning message because this is kind of a how-to topic. We're going to talk this morning about how to do a Bible study. And, and, and so it may be that you want those message notes in front of you, even if you don't typically use them, uh, so that you can follow along as we look at this subject today. There's going to be a lot of information uh, that we uh, see this morning. And uh, as we begin, I, I want to ask us a question, and that is, how many of us have ever seen those documentaries like How to Make a Movie or How to Do This or How to Do... Anybody ever see like a How to Make a Movie documentary? Okay, a few of us have. Um, I love those documentaries. I, I'm fascinated by what goes on behind the scenes uh, to get to the final product of the movie that you and I watch on the screen. Well, today's message is, is kind of like a, the making of a Bible study because we're going to see one of the ways that, that people can study God's Word to get from it what God is wanting to say to us and, and how God is wanting to apply it to our lives so that we can live it. Now, now I understand that there are a variety of Bible study methods, and uh, it, many of you here this morning may have a different way of studying the Bible. That's great. If it's working for you, keep doing it. Uh, this is just one of several ways uh, that we can study God's Word. And my hope is, is that uh, whether you have your own way or you embrace this way, uh, that all of us will get something from this morning's message uh, that is helpful. Well, if you look at your message notes, you'll see that there are four steps that we can take that help us get uh, out of the Bible uh, and our study of it what God wants us to get. And, uh, of course, after you know, taking time to pray and asking the Lord to bless our insights and our, our study of the Word, we then uh, go into what we would call this morning the step of observation. And that's where you and I ask the question as we come to the Scriptures, what does it say? We look at a Bible verse or a story, we look at a passage, and we write down what we observe. We ask, what's it say? What's happening? And, and we write it down. And, and we need to write it down because if we don't, we're just simply reading the Bible. If we're really studying, we want to write down our observations saying the text says this, it, it says this, it, it says this. And then we get to the second step, and, and that is the step of interpretation. And, and, and taking, uh, asking that question, uh, what does it mean? What does it mean? Now, maybe as you hear me say that, you're thinking to yourself, well, doesn't the Bible mean what it says? Well, that, that isn't always the case. Now, understand, the Bible always means what it means, but, but just like in our communication, there can be times when we read the Scripture where there may be a use of a metaphor or an analogy or, or maybe a phrase that doesn't literally translate into English and into our culture what it meant in that culture. Uh, for instance, uh, an example of today's language, if I were to write a letter to you and, and say, hey, you've been pulling my leg, and uh, a thousand years from now, someone who speaks a different language were to find that letter and read it, uh, they might think that you've been literally grabbing my leg and, and pulling on it. But that's not what that means, is it? It means you've been joking with me. You're kidding me. You're, you're teasing me. An example of something like this from Scripture uh, that doesn't literally mean what it says uh, can be found, for instance, in that familiar 
story of of the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, where the gospel writer Luke writes that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus ordering that a census would be taken of all the inhabited earth. That's what he writes in Greek. And he says, all the world went to their hometowns in order to be enrolled. And we could say, well, did the Chinese empire in that day follow the decree of Caesar Augustus and participate in a census so that they could be taxed by the Roman empire? No, of course not. And that's why uh, what Luke wrote is oftentimes translated into English, uh, into our English Bibles, like the NIV, for example, that we use here at church, uh, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the Roman world should be enrolled in the census, because that's what Luke meant. And so you see, the point of saying that is that the Bible means what it means. And how you and I understand and interpret what it means is by looking at the context of the verses around it. For example, if I were to say the word pin, what does that mean to you? Well, if you bake, you might think of a rolling pin. Uh, If you sew, you might think of a sewing pin. If you bowl, you might think of a bowling pin. If you're a kid here today, a little kid that likes to play games, you might think of pin the tail on the donkey. Do you realize that there are some 60 different meanings for the word pin uh, in the English language. So we can't just say that the word means this. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. If you wrestle and I talk about a pin, it, it means you're pinning someone to the mat. An example of something like this from the Bible in the Old Testament, for instance, uh, uh, we could take the Old Testament Hebrew word sheol. And that is a word in Hebrew that is the word for death. It's the word for the grave, the place where the body goes after uh, the life goes out of the body. But, but the word sheol can also mean what the New Testament calls Hades, that place where a person who's outside of a saving relationship with God, who hasn't experienced grace and mercy and forgiveness of sin, where their spirit goes after death as they await the final resurrection and the judgment day. At the same time, the word Sheol can mean what the New Testament calls hell, that final destination uh, for people who are outside of a saving relationship with God. So, so when we see that word in the Old Testament, we've got to look at the context, at the verses around it to help us figure out what it means. Now, as I say that, I, I know that probably all of us in this world we live in have heard people say when we talk about the Bible, well, that's just your interpretation as if you can have an interpretation and i can have an interpretation and other people can have an interpretation and they're all equally valid and and you know that's just not true each bible verse has one meaning it might have multiple applications Uh, it, it, It might have different applications depending on whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're young or old, uh, whether you're married or you're single, whether you lived in this century, you lived in the first century. Uh, The Bible can have lots of applications to the verses, but but there's only one meaning in each verse. And so you and I have got to do this work if we're going to study the Bible and study what God's word is saying to us. We've got to do this work of interpretation. It's not simply a matter of, well, that's just your interpretation. That's how a lot of cults have gotten started over the years. As someone or a group of people looks at a verse or some verses in the Bible and they interpret the wrong way. You know, know, a person can make the Bible say a lot of different kinds of things when they take it out of context 
and misinterpret verses here and there. So we've got to do the work of asking ourselves, not only what does it say, but also what does it mean? And then we get to the third step of, of a Bible study, and that would be what we could call correlation. It's, it's asking the question, what other verses explain it? You, you see, if, if there's anything, uh, we, we see if there's anything in the Bible that would help us understand what it is we're reading. It, it's called correlation. It, it's called comparing other verses, because sometimes the Bible is the best commentary on itself. Uh, for example, one of the principles of interpretation is to take verses that, that we just struggle with in terms of what do they mean and, and the clarity of that, and then we look in the Bible for other verses that would help us to understand what it is that we are reading in this particular verse. And to help us do that, we can use what's called an, uh, an exhaustive concordance. I have a book in my office, and some of you have books at home, called an exhaustive concordance. And what it does is it if you get that concordance for the translation that you are reading in, it will list every word that's printed there in your Bible. And it'll list every verse in the Bible that that word is used. So you can do this kind of correlation work. Or uh, today, simply, you can do what I do now, and that is to use a Bible software program that helps us do that. Now, those of you that have been in the 40 days in the Word class or, or in the life groups, you know that in that material that you've been given, there's a section in there called Tools for Effective Bible Study, and, and it lists some of that in there. And so I'm not going to go any deeper into this uh, third step and, and would just simply say that if you're not part of the class or you're not part of a life group, uh, you can check with Pastor Mark and he'll, he'll get some of that material into your hand. But then after asking, what does it say? What does it mean? Are there other verses that help explain it? We then move on to that fourth step of Bible study, and that's application. That's asking that question, what am I going to do about this? Because application, you see, is living and doing what the Bible says so that when we study God's word, we don't just simply get this head knowledge into our head, but we can actually apply it to our life and go out and live in the way that it calls us to live. In James 1, verse 22, the Bible says, don't deceive yourselves. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And in the 40 days of the word classes and studies, we've been seeing different ways, haven't we, to apply God's word to our lives. And we've been hearing from, from a number of you that it's been very, very helpful. And I've got to say to you, I get excited when I hear that kind of stuff. Well, in the rest of the time that we have left this morning, I want to take these four steps and I want us to look at a passage of Scripture and apply these four steps to them so we get a feel for how this way of studying the Bible works. And so if you have your Bibles with you, if you want to look at the Bible that's in the, under the seat in front of you, open up with me, would you, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to look today at verses 19 through 30. And, uh, and, and as you're opening up the Bible to Philippians, if you're new to the Christian faith, Philippians is about seven-eighths of the way, three-quarters, seven-eighths of the way through the Bible. You'll find it near the end there. Uh, as you're opening up to that, let me just give you a little background. This is a letter that Paul is writing uh, from prison. And the reason he's writing it from prison is that he has been persecuted for his faith. Uh, he's been put in prison because of his missionary work and telling others about Jesus. And he is hoping that he's going to appear someday soon before Caesar uh, to get his trial 
done and over with. And he's hoping that he'll be released one day and that he can go back to all of these churches that he started on his missionary journey. But what he's doing here while he's in prison is he's writing letters to those churches that he started. And one of them is in the city of Philippi, which is a city in Greece. And and what he's writing here is, is it's kind of a thank you note. It's a thank you letter to this church that had taken up a love offering for him while he was in prison. For you see, People in that day just didn't get, you know, three square meals from the prison system when they were in prison. In that day, if you were in prison, your loved ones or friends had to take care of you. They had to provide food for you. And so this church in Philippi has taken up an offering that they've sent to Paul to help meet some of his needs. And they send it there through a man by the name of Epaphroditus. And in the middle of this letter, here is what Paul writes, beginning in verse 19 of chapter 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have nobody else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everybody else just looks after his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proven himself. He's proved himself as a son with his father. He served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I can see how things go with me. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's also necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger because you sent him to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you. In other words, he's homesick. And he's distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed, he was ill. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me to spare sorrow from sorrow. uh, Our sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, Paul saying added to the difficulty of being in prison would have been the difficulty of losing a really good friend. So he says God had mercy on him, spared him from that. And he says, therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you couldn't give me. In other words, you couldn't be here with me. So you sent him and he risked his life. He says, welcome him, welcome him with joy and honor men like him. Now, maybe as we hear a passage like this, we think to ourselves, you know, there's really not a lot in here. It's pretty much a thank you note, mentions a couple guys who they all know. And in fact, you might uh, read this or I might read this and we might wonder why God even put this in the Bible. Kind of a strange passage of scripture. Uh, doesn't really have a lot of big truths for, for your life or mine. And, and we'd be tempted, wouldn't we, to skip over it. But if we did, we'd really miss out on some important stuff that God's Word has to teach us. And so today, because this is uh, the month of October and we are emphasizing men's ministry during the month of October, we've chosen this text to kind of look at and do these steps with that we've been learning about how to do Bible study because it's really a a passage of Scripture that speaks to us as guys uh, because it's about Timothy and Epaphroditus. At the same time, it really speaks to all of us. And so my hope is that whether you're a guy here today or or a woman, uh, you'll also get from it uh, what God would have for us this morning. So let's start with the step of observation and ask ourselves, 
what does this say? And if we simply looked at the passage and read through it a few times, we could write down a few things. The first thing being, we observe that Paul intends to send two men to Philippi. Verse 19, he says, I hope to send you Timothy. And in verse 25, he says, I think it's necessary to send Epaphroditus back to you. And then as we read on, we could also see that uh, he endorses these guys as role models. Uh, we, we could see that, uh, there we go. We could see in verse 20 uh, that Paul says about Timothy, I have no one else like him. And, uh, and as we see that, we might have the tendency to say, well, we'll just skip over that. You know, what does that mean? Well, well, hey, you know, this is one of the greatest endorsements that you and I could ever receive as a Christian. I mean, here is the Apostle Paul, and he's one of the most impactful Christians who has ever lived. And, and, and he's saying about this guy, hey, I've got no one else like him in my life. You know, if Paul said that about you and me, that wouldn't be any small issue, would it? We've got to pay attention to that when he says about Timothy, I've got nobody like Timothy. And then about Epaphroditus in verse 29, he says, welcome and honor men like him. Honor men like him. So what he's saying is that, that whatever these guys are doing, they're unusual, they're, they're unique, they are worthy of honor. We need to follow their example. We need to honor men like them. Now, notice as well in this, he uses the same phrase in both cases, doesn't he? He uses those words like him. He says of Timothy, I have nobody else like him. He says of Epaphroditus, honor men like him. And whenever we see phrases repeated, we want to take note of that. And we want to kind of mentally circle that or, or write that down. Because when we see that, that then naturally leads us to the next observation question which is, so what are these guys like? We're supposed to, you know, honor men like them. What are they like? Why are they worthy of honor? Why are they deserving of praise? What are these guys actually doing in their lives that makes them so special? Well, when we ask that question and we read through the passage again, we could observe five things about these guys. Verses 20 through 21, about Timothy, it says he takes a genuine interest in you. Verse 22 says about Timothy, he has proved himself. Verse 25 says about Epaphroditus, he's my brother. He's my fellow worker. He's my fellow soldier. Verse 26, he longs for all of you and he is distressed. And then in verses 27 through 30, it says Epaphroditus almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. And so we can write down these five uh, observations about these guys. And then we can go on to the interpretation piece and we can say, well, what does this mean? mean to us well what it means to us is that we see here five marks five characteristics of what it means to be a godly person five characteristics of what it means to be a godly man in their case or, or a godly woman for that matter because this stuff speaks to all of us who are here this morning or all of us who would read this in our homes and, and what are those characteristics Let's walk back through those five that we've already listed. Verse 21, Paul says about Timothy, I've got no one else like him. Why is nobody else like him? Well, because he takes a genuine interest, Paul says, in your welfare, and everybody else only looks out for their own interests. Paul is saying it is rare. It's rare when someone takes a genuine interest in the welfare of others because most people look out for their own interests in our world and in our culture, don't they? 
You know, I find one of the ways that's helpful for me to interpret Scripture and understand the full meaning of phrases is to take a variety of English translations. We're, we're blessed in our English language to have many different translations. And, and we can take some of those different translations and, and, and we can help read them. And, and, it, and it more fully explains what it means. And a couple of other translations of this verse, for example, say, Timothy genuinely cares for you while others care only for themselves. Or I like the Phillips translation. It says, it really cuts to the chase. It says, they're all wrapped up in their own affairs, you know. And so as we look at this and we interpret this, we can say that the first characteristic of a godly man, the first characteristic of a godly person is that that person is caring. They're compassionate. They're unselfish. They think about others before themselves. When everybody else is interested in their own agenda, their own business, their own ways of doing things, Paul says a godly person cares about others. And he says, honor, honor men like that. Honor people like that. And you know, friends, if there is ever a message that is needed in today's culture, it is this message. Because we live in a culture, don't we, that teaches us to, to be self-centered. We live in a culture that teaches us to be selfish. I mean, just look at the advertising agencies and stuff they put out there. I mean, look at the ads we see on television or radio, you know. We do it all for you is one slogan. Or another slogan is have it your way. Another one is you deserve the best. Another one is you deserve a break today. I saw one recently where the person says trying to sell something and they said, you know, I've got to think about what's best for me. I mean, how many ads really teach us or say we've got to be unselfish. Paul says it's rare to find an unselfish man. It's rare to find an unselfish person. But he says a godly man, a godly person, cares about others. Then there's that second characteristic that Paul talks about. As we learn about Timothy in verse 22, when it says Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father... He has served me in the work of the gospel. Another translation, God's Word, the God's Word translation says, you know what kind of person Timothy proved to be. And what's that mean? Well, well that word proven means tested. And it means that as he's been tested, he's been found reliable as he served in the ministry of the gospel and the good news of, of God and God's love to the world around him. Paul's saying Timothy's dependable, he's reliable, he's proven faithful. And isn't that one of the greatest attributes that people can have today, that, that someone is dependable, that, that we're consistent in other words, that, that we, we keep our word, we are consistent? And so another way to interpret this would be to say that a godly man or a godly person is consistent. We are people who are dependable, we are people who are faithful, we keep our word we are, are consistent in our convictions and in our character. And, you know, as I see that, I go, wow, you know, God is looking for people who are committed to his standards, who are consistent in our values. In other words, that we aren't living, you know, one way when we're with this group of people. And then when we get with this group of people, we live another total different way. And then when we get to church, you know, then we kind of clean up our act and, and we live another way. Paul is saying that godly people are consistent. 
We depend upon the way we live our life in the ministry of God's people. Then we get to that third characteristic that Paul says uh, uh, about uh, Epaphroditus. And, uh, and we see that in verse 22. He says, I send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother and my fellow worker and my fellow soldier. You know, as we think about that, we, we got to ask, well, okay, what is it that those three groups of people have in common? Well, one of the things they have in common is cooperation. I mean, Paul says that, that you know, uh, Epaphroditus is my brother. And, and you know, if, if just as, as families and physical families need to cooperate together and work together well in order to function well, so too that's true of God's people and God's family. And, and with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be cooperating together and working with each other uh, to, to function well. Paul says uh, about Epaphroditus, he's my fellow worker. And just as fellow workers have got to cooperate with each other to get the job done, that's not only true in the marketplace, but it's true in the church as well. We've got the same mission. We've got the same great commission. We're to work together. We're to serve together. We are to be fellow workers and cooperate with one another. And then Paul calls Epaphroditus a fellow soldier and and just as soldiers must cooperate with each other, and as I learned in the Marine Corps, uh, especially in times of battle, we've got to cooperate with each other if we're going to survive. That is true in regard to God's people as well. We are fellow soldiers. We've got the same battle. We're fighting the same enemy. We're fighting Satan. We're fighting the evil one who would seek to detract us and, 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 and derail us from living our lives for Jesus Christ and, and from the faith that we have in God. And Paul is saying we've got to cooperate. We're in this together. And, and so we see from this that, that another characteristic of a godly man or a godly person is that, that we are cooperative. We don't say, you know, I really don't need you and you really don't need me and, and, and we don't need really the church. I, I can be a Christian and, and, and not go to church. You know, whenever, we, whenever I hear people say that stuff, it, it's not good. We need each other. You have strengths that I need, and, and I have strengths that you need, and, and all of us in the church need what you have to offer from your strengths. And that's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 24 through 25 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love good and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another all the more, he says, as the day of Jesus Christ's return draws near. We need each other. We need to cooperate with one another in the ministry of God's people. Fourth characteristic that we can see from this text is uh, found where Paul says of Epaphroditus in verse 26 that, uh, that he longs for all of you. He's distressed, you see, because he heard that uh, you were ill, he, that you heard he was ill. And, and notice what's going on here. Notice what's going on here is that, that here's a church that is started by Paul in Greece. And, and, and Paul is now in prison in Rome. And so this church takes up an, a love offering and they need somebody to go and take that offering to Paul. And so Epaphroditus says, I'll do it. And, and we got to understand, you know, this is, you know, the days before planes, trains and automobiles, right? Uh, I mean, it's a long way to hoof it from, uh, from Greece to uh, Rome in Italy. 
and there aren't motels along the ways, but there are potentially thieves that could uh, steal the offering money from him or worse yet, could even uh, potentially kill him. You add to that the fact that, uh, you know, he is going to have to leave his business behind for a few months. Uh, He's doing this at great personal expense. And then along the way, Epaphroditus gets sick and he nearly dies. And because these people love him and care for him, they're worried. But what's his reaction? What's his reaction? He is distressed, not because of his own circumstances. He's distressed because they're distressed. He's concerned about their concerns. He's worried for them because they are worried about him. He's not thinking about himself. And that leads us to that fourth characteristic of a godly man or person that's there on the screen behind me. And that is that we are considerate. We're concerned about what other people feel. We're concerned about what somebody else is worried about. We're concerned when somebody else is afraid about something. We don't just say, hey, get over it. (laughs) We are considerate about the feelings of others. Now, we don't have time this morning to do the correlation part of all this, but, but if we did, we could take this word considerate and we could say, okay, Paphroditus is considerate of others. Let's look and see what the Bible says about being considerate. All kinds of you know, times in the Bible, it talks about being considerate of others. One, for instance, guys, since this is a, you know, a month where we're focusing on men's ministry, would be 1 Peter 3, 7, where, where Peter writes, Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives. Now, all of us know that in our own human nature, our own human nature is, is not one that's uh, uh, considerate, is it? Rather, our own human nature is one that is self-centered. We want what we want when we want it. But Peter is saying here, if we were to do this work of correlation, guys, as we think about being considerate of others and what they feel, be considerate of your wife and your communication with her. Be considerate of your fear, her fears. Be be considerate in how you make decisions. Be considerate when it comes to the physical part of the relationship between a man and a woman. A godly man, the scripture says, is considerate. And if Paul was here today, he would also say a godly woman is considerate too. Then we get to that fifth characteristic that we find in in verses 27 and 30, where, where Paul says about Epaphroditus, indeed, he was ill and he almost died. He almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you couldn't give me. As we're studying the scripture, we're making those observations. We need to be circling that word, risking his life, because you see, that's the, the fifth characteristic of a godly man or a godly woman is that we are courageous. We're courageous. Uh, Epaphroditus, you see, he, he risked his life and he almost died for the work of Christ. He was fearless. He was courageous. And, and notice what it says he's courageous about. Paul says he risked his life to make up for what? The help that you couldn't give me. What he's saying, you see, is that Epaphroditus is courageous, not for his own benefits, but he is courageous and taking risks for the ministry of God in this world and for the benefits of another person. You know, I found it interesting 
couple of weeks ago as I was putting this message together and I was doing some studying that when I looked at that phrase, he risked his life in the Greek language that Paul is writing in. It literally means he hazarded his life. And you know what I found interesting is that it's a gambling term. Paul uses a gambling term here. It, it, he's kind of like saying like we might say of somebody in Las Vegas, they, they took a roll of the dice and they risked it all on one roll. What Paul's saying is that Epaphroditus is one of God's great gamblers. He rolled the dice and he was willing to spend his life for God's ministry. You know, we see people gamble all the time with their lives and spend their life on stuff that doesn't last forever or won't count really for eternity. And, and some of the stuff is okay to take risks for. I mean, uh, you know, for instance, I love watching you know, extreme sports and, and, and seeing that. Against, I mean, some of those people are crazy. I mean, they go climb mountains, they, they scale walls, they surf enormous waves, they take all kinds of risks. But they're taking risks for their own glory, aren't they? For their own rush, that own adrenaline rush of excitement. And in business today, we see people who'll bet the farm on a business deal that they might personally benefit from. But, but Paul's not talking about doing risky stuff here and, and being courageous so that, so that we can get the, you know, the, the thrill of the rush of an extreme sport or so that we can get the glory or, or so that we can make a lot of money in a risky business deal. What he's talking about is risking for someone else. He's talking about gambling our lives and, and, and setting aside some of our agenda and going out into this world in which he's called us to live. And risk for ministry to others. He's saying, set aside some of your own agenda and some of what you want to do. And, and, and come to the church family. And, and come alongside young people in our children's ministry or in our youth ministry. And, and, and be willing to serve in that place and mentor them. Or, or be willing to come alongside adults and, and, and serve in that place. And give what you have to give. Take a risk. Set aside some of your own agenda. He's saying take a risk and set aside some of your own agenda in a few weeks to go out on, take the October 20th and, and go and, and serve people here in Salina and love on them in Jesus' name by helping them with their physical needs. He's saying take a risk. Set aside some of your own agenda and, and maybe even go to a faraway place and, and do a mission trip in a faraway land. Or, or if you can't go, because obviously not everyone can go and do that then set aside some of your own resources and instead of spending them on yourselves, spend them for the work of the gospel and the ministry of God's kingdom. Paphroditus, you see, is God's great gambler. As he gambles his life and takes a risk for faith in Jesus Christ, for the benefit of others, for the ministry of God's work in this world. We don't have time today to look at correlation. And if we did, we could take a look at other verses this morning in the Bible that talk about Timothy and Paphroditus, show us who they were, what they were about. This morning, as we close, I want us to just think for a moment about this last step and, and this step of application and and, and to ask ourselves, what am I going to do with this? 
We've heard this morning these, these five characteristics or five of the characteristics that the scripture teaches us about what it means to be a godly man, a godly woman as we live life in this world. What are we going to do about it? And I want to encourage you and me to take these message notes home with us this week and, and look at these characteristics and, 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 and maybe even in our life groups in this next week, look at some of this and and ask ourselves, what is it that I need to be working on in my life? What are the areas where I am the weakest? Where am I living life that's convenient? And where am I only living for Christ when it's convenient? Where am I loving the church and participating and helping out and giving myself to ministry only as long as there's something else there's not something else going on that, that, that I want to do. Am I living for Christ in these ways? Am I a person who is exemplifying these five characteristics of a godly man, of a godly woman?